Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Happy New Year, Sam. Uh, Same to you, Laurie. How are things going over there? Things are well. A really nice holiday. Nice and relaxed. Got some good reading done and, you know, some family time. But ready to get rolling on 2024 and all the great authors that we have lined up. Yeah. In fact, let's get straight into it because we've just had a, how am I going to describe it? Just a great start to the year. The most wonderful conversation with the Irish author, Mike McCormack, author of Notes from a Coma from 2005, Solar Bones 2016, this incredible novel, single sentence novel. You know I like those. And (laughs) this one uh, won the Goldsmiths Prize over here in the UK. It's getting on for 10 years old now and I think is widely recognised as a masterpiece. I mean, Ellie, my wife and partner at Galley Baker Press, it's a book that she says is absolutely tremendous. Published by the brilliant Dublin publisher Tramp Press, as is the book that we're going to be discussing, in Ireland at least, This Plague of Souls. But I'm telling you all this about Mike McCormack to fill in a bit of the conversation so you know who he is. And he refers to his earlier books in the conversation we've just had. So I thought our listeners would like a bit of situating there. You don't need to know very much about them or to have read them, although, of course, they come highly recommended. But we did want to change the format slightly to let you know what is coming. And also, I wanted to give an extra plug for a bit of music we talk about in the conversation, which is Country Feedback by the great R.E.M. And I don't often want to encourage people to pause this podcast, but you might want to have a listen to that incredible song if you don't know it already, because we get onto that. Yes. Mike's latest novel, This Plague of Souls, which is the primary novel that we talk about in our conversation, is divided into three parts. And the first part is entitled Country Feedback. Yeah, you got a, an A-plus from him on recognizing <laughs> that. It was an REM reference. Yeah, I got excited because it's my favorite REM track. In fact, this is a good opportunity for me to say, I mean, I, in the conversation, I think I said it's my favorite. The thing I didn't go on to say, which is really saying something, because I just love REM. They're such a wonderful band. Michael Stipe, such an astonishing, beautiful singer. So Country Feedback, I commend it to our listeners. I think one of the most amazing things that came out of our conversation was something that I got a tip off on from a recent Los Angeles Review of Books article about Mike and about this Plague of Souls. And it was a quote from him that I'll just read it. I can tell you everything that happens within the 170 pages you have in your hand but there's a lot of background stuff I don't know about. And when we talked to him, it just astounded and amazed me how someone can write a book and not really have the answers to all the narrative plots or the background about their characters. It just seemed like 
such a tricky thing. And I inappropriately used the word withholding in a question that I asked him about withholding information from the reader. But Sam, I'm not sure he's withholding anything because he was very upfront with us that he doesn't know either. Yeah, it's remarkable. It's an incredible tightrope walk. And the whole book is, and it's not a straightforward book. It's well worth reading and it's beautiful. But I really think this conversation helped make a lot of it clearer for me in a way. And it's just worth listening to Mike McCormack anyway, because his eloquence is so astonishing. And he speaks so beautifully. I was completely bored away. In fact, I just wanted to listen to him. I didn't want to stop and ask questions. I know. It's such an interesting mind. And just the way that he thinks about some of the things that he puts into his books. So This Plague of Souls is the second book in what he calls not a trilogy, but a triptych. And Mm. the books are loosely framed around, I guess, the way that he put it, and I'm paraphrasing here, is men that create worlds or constructs. And it's a really interesting idea. I know that in Solar Bones, the first book of the triptych, it's this construct that he's talking about is the kind of the dichotomy between an engineer, the main character, Marcus Conway, whose head we're in throughout the book, who constructs and builds things as an engineer, of course. But then he also talks about the collapse of these constructions, not just with physical structures, but with international finance and all kinds of figurative structures that are built and can fail as well. And it's really interesting. And I think we see that in this Plague of Souls as well. Yeah. And in fact, I think we should just move aside and get into the conversation because it's so fascinating. But one quick thing to say before we get there, I made the mistake of talking about computer glitches and the furies descended, the Eumenides, the kindly ones took against us. And Mike's internet cut out, I think. So there will be a few points where there are slight glitches and perhaps patchy audio in this conversation. But please bear with us because what he says is so wonderful that we want you to stick with it right till the end. Yeah, we're hoping to preserve the entire conversation. And yes, we did have those ghosts in the machine, so to speak. (laughs) But yeah, just really encourage all of our listeners to just... I don't know, sit back and listen to the brilliance. It's wonderful. And it's undeniable that you're going to want to go out and read these books, I think. Good to talk to you, Sam. You too, Laurie. We're so pleased today to have with us author Mike McCormick, who's with us today to talk about his new novel, This Plague of Souls. Welcome, Mike. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me, Laurie. We're so happy to have you today. And do you want to get us started with a brief reading from the book? I will. Thank you. Yes. I'm going to read the first two and a half pages from the book, and hopefully that will set up the atmosphere and set up the idea of the book for you. And that. So here we go, the opening two or three pages. Opening the door and crossing the threshold in the dark triggers the phone in Neelan's pocket. He lowers his bag to the floor and looks at the screen. It's not a number he recognises. For the space of one airless heartbeat, he has a sense of things drifting sideways, draining over an edge. The side of his head is bathed in the forensic glow of the screen light. Yes? You're back. Welcome. Welcome home, Leland. Who am I talking to? Oh, only a friend would call at this hour. The voice at the other end is male and downbeat. Not the sort you would choose to listen to in the dark. 
Neelan is aware of himself in two minds, the voice on the phone drawing against his immediate instinct to orient himself in the dark hallway. He turns to stand with his back to the wall. You know who I am? Oh, that's the least of what I know. What do you want? Two paces to his left, Neelan spots a light switch. He reaches out with his spare hand and throws it, throws it back and throws it again. Nothing. Half his face remains shrouded in blue light. He takes five steps to open a door and passes into what he senses is an open room. A swipe of his hand over a low shadow finds a table. He draws out a chair and he takes the rest of the phone call, sitting in the dark. I thought I'd give you a shout, the voice says. Well, you have the wrong number. I don't think so. I'm going to hang up. Oh, no, there's no rush. Goodbye. We should meet up. No, not tonight. You're just in the door. You need some rest. We don't have anything to talk about. Oh, I wouldn't be so sure. I am. In a day or so, when you're settled. No, not then, and not ever. We'll talk again. One last thing. What is it? Don't be sitting there in the dark. The main switch is over the back door. And with that, the phone goes dead in Neelam's hand. Lovely. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, there is a lot in that passage already. And maybe we should start by, if I ask about the caller and what is going on there, how does he know that Neelan's in the dark? And how does he have this almost supernatural knowledge about him? Yeah, I've wondered that as well. How does he know that? (laughs) There's one other place that comes to my mind, and I know there's a second place in which he does things that not just illustrate a powerful temporal grasp, but almost a divine grasp. Very late in the book, he lifts a thought clean out of Neelan's head. He shows himself to be privy to a piece of knowledge he should not know. So he actually says to Neelan something to the effect of, no, she's not going to show up. What do you think she's going to do? Do you think she's going to say, guess where I am? That's a kind of a a little code that they had between them when Alwyn used to ring him up and say, guess where I am? And he seems to be privy to that. He seems to know that. So the question you asked me feeds into something about the book that I've tried to achieve. And it's this, that when I started to write this book, there were certain things I wanted to do, certain stylistic and genre things that I wanted to do. I wanted it to be a piece of noir, and I wanted it to have the hard, clipped rhythms of a noir. I knew it was going to be a crime novel, but I was interested in it being a metaphysical crime novel. I wanted reality to be at stake rather than the love of a good woman, even though that's part of a reward, like the Maltese Falcon or Avenge or some of those things that govern noir. I also wanted to write a book about which I could not speak and a book I could not explain. I can tell you what happens within the scope of the 170 pages that the book takes up, okay? But there's background material that I do not know, you know. I don't know how to answer that question. And I agree with you. You're actually one of the first people to point... I was waiting for people to point that out, that how does he know that? It's one of the most obvious things in the world. Like, how does he know he's sitting in the dark? It's a phone call. And of course, then that feeds into no Neelan's thing, that he himself has been surveilled and that he is even the source of his own surveillance in some way where he he takes his body. But for me, the point is that there's so many... It's a complete book. I hope it makes sense. I hope it adds up to a unified image 
image, but it should also leave a whole heap of questions behind it. And they're questions that I can't answer. I really don't know the answer to an awful lot of the hinterland of the book. What happens out behind? And prior to you opening the book, there's a lot of things that I don't understand about it. Okay. <laughs> I want to ask a lot of questions about things you can't answer in that case. Like, about, for instance, the setting of the book, which is recognisably island and Dublin, I think. But then there are all kinds of things that are happening there that just aren't happening in contemporary Ireland. There's some kind of crisis going on. And the way things happen in the world is sometimes not quite as it happens in our world. So things that happen to Neeland, you know, inside his head almost seem to be reflected in the world outside, for instance. And it's almost as if he's influencing what seems to be a growing crisis yeah. outside of where he is. Uh, yeah, I wonder, is, is there some causal connection between Neil and himself and this catastrophe that seems to be impending? Um, I worked on that for a while and I wasn't able to come up with a definitive answer. I wondered about that myself. Is there some causal connection? There's certainly a coincidental connection. His own personal catastrophe seems to be taking place at a very auspicious or propitious moment and you're inclined to believe that he has this reach even though there's no definitive answer there's a lot of circumstantial evidence to show that at one time he had this ability and this reach and this influence to make certain things happen but there's no definitive link to show that this is happening right now there's no definitive link to show that he has a causal connection to what's happening Again, that's one of the questions that the book leaves. That's a question that my editor asked me very early on, and it's a question I'd asked myself. I'm still not able to answer it. Is he the cause of this? Has he brought it down on his own head or on our head or something? You're saying that things happen here that don't quite happen in the real world, and, and I would agree with that as well. There's certain global events that kind of happen, that look the same. They have reference to Bali bombings, Madrid bombings. They're sequenced funny. They they don't quite fall into their proper alignment and that. And I worried about that when I was writing the book. And I made a strenuous effort at one stage to bring them into alignment. And I had them all in alignment. And then I threw them all up in the air because I realized, actually, you know, what? I'm not actually writing history or I'm not even writing alternate history. I'm writing a work of fiction. And if I was to go back again and write it again, I'd be much more playful with that element of the book, with it. I agonised, I think, for too long in trying to bring these things into alignment. And now they're sort of alignment and sort of not in, in alignment. In that. So, yeah, you're right that things happen in his world and things happen outside his world. That there's a, They have a giddy relationship with the world that we know very definitely, yeah. Yeah, really. There's a kind of uncanny valley effect as well where you're looking at things and it feels you know recognizable but then there's something you know a little line that smoothed out of place in the wrong way or you kind of feel like the computer's glitched a little bit or but that wasn't necessarily a deliberate effect from the start was it not you know no i think you're right so mike i wanted to go back to the passage that you read and we hear and see that neilan is returning to the home where he was raised actually as a young boy and where he afterward lived as a new husband and father and we learn he's been in jail for a while and he's returning but he 
doesn't know exactly where his wife and son are. And he's consumed by the need to reestablish a relationship with them. And I think the reader, at least this reader, was left wondering whether his obsession to talk to his wife and to see his wife and the reuniting is fueled by his loneliness and love for them only, or whether it's also a fear for their safety. And the second part of my, or the real question here is now, I think, confused in my mind a little bit by what you said about not knowing and having a lot of questions in your own mind, because I phrase this in terms of you're withholding information from the reader, but maybe you wouldn't even agree that you are withholding. But I wondered whether this kind of, if it is in fact withholding of significant facts about Neelan's past and present, was this challenging for you in writing it? Or did it kind of, what were your reasons for holding back and not spelling it all out for the reader? Let's face the first question first about Neelan's motivation for wanting to see his wife and his child and that. I believe his intentions are honorable there. I think that he actually does want dearly to see his wife and child. I believe his motives are pure in that. I think he loves both of them. And you have to remember that this book forms the second part of a meditation on the idea of men who try to build worlds. And it comes from which I opened up in Solar Bones. And this is another attempt at it, that same thing. And in Solar Bones, there's this attempt to an engineer builds the world. He literally builds the bridges and the roads and the, the hospitals and all the civic, all the public works that make our world and that. But also he builds a family. And that seems to me to be synonymous with the idea of building. And the same thing we have here, the same thing with Neelan. He's an artist. He might even be a con artist. There mightn't be a difference between those two things. But he's also a family man. He sees that and he holds that dear. And he seems to be well and purely intentioned to both wife and child. And I think actually as well, he may or may not suspect that they are in danger. I think he tried to lift Alwyn out of danger him being a danger to herself and the dangerous milieu that he himself inhabited at one stage or other. And all of those things kind of feed on to your second question about was there a conscious withholding? Was there? It was conscious on my part as an author, yes, because I designed that was the mission I set myself as a writer was to write as cluelessly as I could. I always said that when my cup of cluelessness overflowed, <laughs> That then the book would be finished. Then I would know that I had finished. And sure enough, it overflowed in the last couple of pages and that for me. And there it is. I knew the book was done. I don't know if he's guilty of the crime that he did time for. I'm not even certain what that crime was. It seems to have to mean something to do with some sort of identity theft or something like that. I'm not so sure why the trial collapsed. It seems to have been a botched investigation. There seems to have been some sort of uh, lack of uh, documentation not adding up and everything like that. He seems to have presented a threat to the state. He was one of the longest remand prisoners in the history of the state. And that so he was a pretty privileged character, pretty distinguished in his dastardly vocation in that. So was it a conscious withholding on my part? It was more a conscious map of cluelessness on my part. That's what I set out to make a map of my own cluelessness, to be able to write a book that I would not be able to speak about, that I would not be able to broadly context. Uh, I can tell you what happens within the 70, 170 pages after.
after that, then we have a discussion. You know, after that, we have a debate. It seems to me as well, all of my novels want my readers to have an authorial relationship with them. I've written Notes from a Coma. That's a book that had to be sequenced. You had to splice it together. You had to make a decision on when you read certain aspects of it, parts of it and that. Solar Bones was a book that you had to punctuate, you know, mentally and that. And this is a book that you have to fill in a broader contextual background and that. So all of my books seem to have this need for authorial readers, readers who willingly interact and participate in their completion. And that maybe goes back my short history as a gamer, in which gamers had to complete games and had to bring them to life in a certain way and that. So I've always thought that books were the most interactive things that culture had provided us with. So interactive readers, authorial readers, that's what my books have consistently needed. I, I, you know, it goes right back to, again, it goes even further back to one of the very first short stories in my first collection of short stories, which is Getting It in the Head, which is 30 years ago. And there's a story in that called The Occupation, A Guide for Tourists. That's essentially a choose-your-own-adventure story. It's a much more macabre version of a choose-your-own-adventure story, which we're of an age to remember those books when we were kids where you made certain choices and decisions on what pages to go to and everything like that. So that kind of participatory readership authorial readership is again what my books wanted. And in answer to your question, Laurie, it seems to me to be the questions that the book raise seems to be a call to the reader to come and have an opinion on this. We're not going to settle it, but, uh, you know, have a considered opinion on this. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to think what my opinion is on, it now, on, the, uh, on what is happening in the book. I suppose I can start in a way by, you know, there are these things that we have to do and think about and this big i get it there's a sense of like a big black immensity outside the book with a few pricks of light that we try and navigate by but there are also very real and definite things within the book it's not like you don't help us so you know there is the domestic space that you describe so beautifully that neelan has come from you know his wife and his young son and these very personal feeling, intimate details about, you know, for instance, his son needing the toilet at nighttime. And there's kind of a lovely description of that. And then how much Neelan misses being there with him and also how he misses his own father. So there are very relatable and you know, things you can grab hold of and pull close as well, I guess. And I don't have much of a question here, but I wonder if you could tell us about where those intimate domestic details come from and how those help you build the book up. Yeah, that'd be one of, you know, this comes with age. I spoke to you there a story from my first collection called The Occupation of Guide for Tourists. That's an extravagant gothic construct. And I wrote that in my 20s, but I'm now in my 50s. And if you told me in my 20s that I would be writing about <laughs> family and domesticity, I would have got, oh my God, no, not another. <laughs> but now I opened up that theme for myself in Solar Bones, which was all about a man living in his own house, his marriage, his relationship with his kids and that. This seems to have continued on into this world of quiet 
day-to-day domesticity of cleaning up after your child, of feeding your child, sitting and eating with your wife, all of that sort of thing. You know, that's a thing that I've come to that late in my own life and found it to be a great marvel and a great joy and a great pleasure. And I think you're right in that you use the expression that you can hold on to. You can hold on to these aspects of the book. Okay, this is recognisable. There's a lot of other weird stuff going on, but this domesticity, this is recognisable. I think that's an important function because I do think that there is the necessity in a lot of my books for sheer groundedness because there's a lot of strange stuff coming down the road. I think that's very obvious in a book like Notes from a Coma, where a bachelor farmer rescues a child from a Romanian orphanage. And the book actually becomes a science fiction novel about a penal experiment and that. It becomes a really outlandish story and that. But the grounding element and the thing that makes it coherent and believable as a fiction is the quiet domesticity at its heart, the relationship between the father and the son in this small farm on the west of Ireland. It's only now, as I'm speaking about it to you, that I realise that there is this parallel between Notes from a coma and this plague of souls where there is this construct of two men living together in the house and no woman for one is a bachelor and the other is a widow mothers have you know been pushed to one side by my imagination in both of these books and that i don't know why it is possibly it's because you know it's well known that my father died when i was 18 and so writing about fathers kind of longingly i guess has always presented itself to me as a theme in that and my fathers differ from most irish fathers in fiction in that they're good, decent men who want the best both for their wives and their children and that they're not the sullen, oppressive fathers that sometimes Irish fiction seems duty-bound to create and that maybe that's it I mean you know my own mother is alive and like every other Irish lad I'm close to her and that (laughs) and as a consequence I don't seem to have any need to write about mothers that much so all of those reasons but to go back to circle back to your observation yeah the quiet domesticity of my last three novels are things that I my 20 and 30 year old self would have marveled at that I went down that road that that presented itself and I find it I find it amazing I find it thematically very rich I find the small rituals of day-to-day life hugely rewarding and some things that are not to be taken for granted not to be passed over lightly and that there are certain writers who are really good on these kind of things you know a writer like Saul Bellow who isn't a personal you know hero of mine or anything but Saul Bellow was brilliant on the making of coffee and that he he has a marvelous description of getting a block of Lavazza coffee and opening it for the first time piercing the block and the smell of it coming out it's a small pleasure he says but it's not to be missed. Gorgeous place. And that's only a small morning thing. I always remember I think that was one of those snagging details that I remember reading in Bellow and thinking, geez, you're right about that. That is something that I have experienced. How many times have I not paid attention to that? I'm going to pay attention to it. And this is one of the things about fiction, is that it should help us, I think, to live more attentively. To open our eyes to just the sheer improbability of what it is to be alive and to be on this earth and to be human. Just think about the causal sequence that has to hold its proper alignment right from the big bang to this moment think of all the places where it could have gone wrong the slightest nudge and the three of us would not be here talking like this or even the machines that accommodate this moment and that mediate this moment they would not be here just think of that i think actually if we had a proper understanding of that that our minds would just fry with astonishment we're probably properly shielded from a proper understanding of that kind of thing you know that all our synapses would just burn and melt down if we could encompass uh, what that means let's get a bit away, Sam, from the question you asked me. <laughs> no, God, that's I 
That's brilliant. I just yeah, <laughs> I think we should almost pause to, to just dwell on that for a while. <laughs> we are protected from the awe of our existence. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, we are protected from our own astonishment, uh, uh, I, I think, by it. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about one of those things that I was able to grab hold of in the book. As the daughter of farmers, I thought that you did the farm stuff just so well, and particularly talking about the blood and the shit and the gore and the, you know, the struggle that is what you witness on a farm of life from birth to the butcher shop. And I love the part, you know, where Neelan is kind of dismissive of the watery vegetarians that he meets in the city (laughs) that don't really appreciate all of that. And one of the other things that I thought was remarkable about the book and really set the atmosphere that I wanted to ask you about is the falling rain. Neilan has what he calls a sacred memory of standing in the hay barn with his dad and watching the rain falling during a heavy downpour. And his father says, in reference to the rain, there's never an end to it. And Neelan wonders whether that rain is a sorrow or a consolation. And I kind of wanted to ask you about how you use the rain to set the atmosphere for the book and how the rain interacts with light and shadow. I thought it was really effective. You're the second one that has come back to me about the details on farming and has paid me the compliment that they thought that was one of the most interesting aspects of the book and that and particularly the more glutinous aspects of blood and shit and that as you spoke about it and that again you're saying that that's just so familiar to me from my own upbringing and that that's just one of the things that his background was farming and he was going to encounter all of this. It's a pretty visceral life. You see things as a child that maybe you should have been protected from. You saw calves being born, you know. You saw your father and your uncle up to his shoulder and trying to turn a calf in a cow's womb or something like that. And you grew resilient to these kind of things. So that seemed to me to be, would form a natural part of it in that. And I was hard on vegetarians. He was hard on vegetarians there. But, you know, and and although I'm not a vegetarian myself, I'm a lot closer to it now than I ever was in my life on that. I still would have a great regard for farms, farmers and what they do, especially for the texture Ah. of what they do in that. And Part of it was, I mean, I think there is, a, you know, as a little boy, I was very, very close to my grandfather up in North Mayo. His name was Michael Ginty. And I followed him around like a puppy around the farm. And he was of that generation of men who walked out into a field with a scythe on his shoulder into one and two acres of corn and barley with a scythe on his shoulder. I thought he was an absolute giant. It was only when he died and I was speaking about this to my brother and sister and they they looked at me and they said, he was only five foot three. What are you talking about? He's a small man. But to me, he was about seven foot tall. And that's what he was in my memory. And that time after time, I would have stood under a green hay shed waiting for a shower to pass with him. It's about the most mundane thing that, that I would have ever done. It's about the most obvious thing that I would have ever done as a child on that farm. And I could hear the rain making a continuous note. If it was heavy enough, it would make a continuous note on the galvanize over our head. It was the world would hum in this note. The whole universe would hum in this note. And it could be a grey day or it could be, you know, a summer shower or something like that. I remember that so vividly and so clearly. And it is a sacred memory to me. It was I was happy as a little boy, you know, with my grandfather. I'm very happy with him in that. I don't know, you know, part of my background is that I was born in London, 
to my parents who immigrated there to work. And we used to come home in the summer to visit my mum's place in North Mayo. And at the age of four, I put up my hand and I said, I'm okay here, mum and dad. You go back to London. I'm okay here with granny and granddad. I lived with them for two or three years or something like that. And I knew myself to be safe and protected. I was in my family. I was safe. I was loved. I was prized turkey cock. And <laughs> uh, they looked after me like that. That didn't mean that I didn't do a day's work. I did a day's work from the day you could stand up on a small farm. But being side by side with my grandfather was a part of those two or three years that becomes more vivid and more clearer as I, the older I get. And, and the rain, it's just a constant texture, a lorry of this part of the world. It's just, I've often thought of writing a much longer book on rain to see, could it, see is it possible to do it? And there's that visual element as well. I've spoken before about my education as a writer and as an artist and that, how my 20s was spent exclusively among visual artists. I didn't meet a writer until I was 30, okay? And the writer I met was a great poet called Thomas Lynch from Michigan. He was the first writer I ever met, and I was 30 years of age when I met him. But all my 20s were spent among visual artists, you know, painters, sculptors, video makers. So they gave me an education on how to look at things, how to look at light, how to see the moods and rhythms and gradations of light, to see how it worked against walls, backgrounds, to see how it fell through certain light and everything like that, to see how it created mood. That was hugely valuable as a writer. I picked it up by osmosis. But they would, I would stand and I would frequent their studios. I would listen to them talk about it. I would hear them, I would watch them standing at paintings and talking about paintings among themselves. And I picked it up over 10 years. I'm a slow learner. But I picked a lot of things up from them. And that visual element that you talk about, an atmosphere that you talk about, Laurie, that's a direct inheritance of that. That's a direct result of my background, personal experience, and filtering it through those visual skills that I acquired um, through my years hanging out with visual artists. There's also a lot of descriptions of sound in the book and, you know, like the, the voice over the phone that we heard about at the beginning of this conversation. But what I particularly wanted to ask about is almost outside the book, which is the name of the first part of the book is Country Feedback. And I might be wrong, but I'm thinking that's a reference to the, you know, for the benefit of our listeners who haven't heard it, this incredibly beautiful and haunting REM song that has a really particular, well, feedback sound going through it. And, you know, so when I saw that, that kind of jumped into my head as I started reading the, the opening pages. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your thinking there. Oh, well done, Sam. Go to the head of the class. <laughs> yeah, it's a direct reference to that song. And it's a direct reference to the chorus. It's crazy what he could have. It's crazy mm -hmm. what you could have had. And that's, uh, R.E.M. were maybe the biggest indie band of my generation. In any tally of their greatest songs, that one tends to fall outside. But for my money, it's their greatest song. And there's a brilliant, brilliant live version of it on YouTube. And it's a country song. And you know the song, Sam, yeah? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely my favourite R.E.M. song. Yeah, it makes their hairs on the back of my neck go up every time. It's just... yeah. It has that chorus. It's well, how does it go? It's crazy what he could have, what what you could have had. 
It's crazy. Yeah, I need this. I mean, it's kind of... I need this. Yeah. I came very close to quoting the whole verse in the book on that, but I didn't (laughs) do that. And and it is about country and feedback. This voice in in the night as a feedback uh, device, feeding his life back to him, which he does at one stage or other. You know, in the second part of the book, he gives him a synopsis of his life in which Neil and Marvel's, Jesus, that life makes sense as he says it like that. It didn't make any sense to me as I lived it. But as he tells it in a story like that, it makes great sense and it's coherent and everything like that. I just love, it's a two-line poem. Sorry, it's a two-word poem, country feedback. I just absolutely, you know, if it never got any further than those two <laughs> words, it was still infinitely ponderable. As I say, and as I say, like, R.E.M. weren't particularly huge to me in my imagination, but that song is, stands above and apart for me for various reasons. It's just haunting. It's just brilliant. It's funny, yeah, because uh, Shiny Happy People was on the radio just before I came on to, to talk to you today. So R.E.M. are in the air. But you're the, you're the second person you're only the second person that spotted that sound. Well, Mike, it's been such a joy and so really fascinating to talk to you about this book. Insofar as I understand that this is the second volume of a triptych, I think you're calling it a triptych loosely, that will deal with this theme of men creating worlds. I certainly hope that you'll come back and talk to us for the third book. I would love to. Thank you very much. It's been a whole lot of fun. And where am I speaking to you from? I'm here in the West of Ireland. I'm here in Galway. Where where are you? Where am I calling you? I'm in Dallas, Texas. Okay, and I'm in Norwich. Norwich. Angley, oh my yeah. god. <laughs> just, just just down the road from me. <laughs> Compared to Dallas, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, folks, and um, best of luck with all your work and all your own projects and that. And I appreciate your taking time out from your day to speak to me about my work. Take care. It's been our pleasure, and we want to encourage all of our listeners out there to go out to your local independent bookstore and purchase a copy of This Plague of Souls by Mike McCormick. Thank you. Thank you.